Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 56, A New King in Babylon. Previously on The Fan of History, Tiglath Pileser III, the greatest king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, has been enlarging the empire ever since he took the throne 
745 BC. So, Dan, what is happening now? I will tell you, but first, I got to thank the patrons at patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Yes, thank you very much. I want to, uh, some of you have elected not to get the reward, and that includes the thank you. So, thank you to all anonymous patrons. <laughs> but I also want to thank Patricia, Hall, Frody, Rebecca, Kim, The Endless Knot, that we plugged a couple of episodes back. Great podcast. Yes, great podcast. Uh, and our good old friend Avery, Richard. All right. Yes, thank you, everybody. We really appreciate it. Right now, we are above the $30 mark. So that would mean that we continue past 71 BC with this podcast. All right. We hit the mark. I'm so happy. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> but we have other goals. We need more patrons. Uh, and the two relevant goals coming up are continuing to 500 BC. Because after looking over this, I could see this format work until 500. And then it breaks down. And then, then my plan would be if we continue this narrative to focus only on Greece for the 5th century BC. Mm -hmm. But the second goal that is interesting as well is if we could, if we can reach 200, and I have to check if you are still okay with this, <laughs> uh, then we would go weekly with the podcast. Okay. Yeah, that's fine with me. Awesome. So uh, we will, uh, when the Cimmerians invade, we'll make the final check. And after we reach 71 BC, uh, no matter what, we will probably have a couple of episodes uh, researched by you, Brennan. Yes. Fine. Yeah, so, because we talked so much about this, and now we, we have to do it. <laughs> We're actually here. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm super happy to research beyond 71 BC. That would be awesome. The 7th century BC is uh, a great century with a lot of interesting events, as I've told you many times before. Oh, yes. But please stay now, patrons, and don't leave us. <laughs> <laughs> we really appreciate you. <laughs> Yes. Okay, back to TP3. Alright, let's do this. Just 15 years ago, back in 745 BC, the empire was in shambles. The Neo-Syrian Empire was almost dead. And this guy appeared, and yeah, I love him. You know I love him. <laughs> and he's still around, and he intends to keep going, doing the things he does the best. That is, showing up, taking places, beating people. Uh, this uh, decade, the 720s, are pretty filled, but I think we can fit it into three episodes. Uh, next episode, we'll go fully into Egypt and do a whole episode on Egypt. We have never done that before. And then in episode three, or in episode 58 then, we will talk about the lost tribes of Israel, because we're going to bring the kingdom of Samaria, ancient Israel, down it will die, it will uh -oh. be crushed. And uh, we'll see who did that and where did the Lost Tribes go? Because uh, I found them. I will <sighs> solve the riddle of the Lost Tribes. You have, you've done it? You've broken the mystery? Yes. Yep. So that's for episode 58. But now we are going to look at what uh, TP3 does. Uh, we have, uh, we'll, we'll, start talk about, we'll start talking about uh, Phoenicia. Phoenicia, the wonderful merchant city-states on the coast of the Lebanon. 
the most powerful, which is Tyre, ruled by Hiram II. He managed to become a vassal of Tipitri after being his opponent, pretty much, in 730 BC. But uh, the Phoenicians, they are... They were pretty reluctant here. They've been around. They survived the Bronze Age collapse back in 1200 BC. They've been having a golden age up till this point. But now they see where things are going. They will be far deep in the empire. And even if the Assyrian king now says that, okay, you are vassals, they know that they will be conquered uh, sooner or later. Dun, dun, dun. So they will have to look to their greatest ally, which is the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> so uh, there is an immigration situation in, in Phoenicia. People leave the mainland and go to the colonies. And uh, which colony is exceptionally important in the future, Bremen? That would be... A trick question. Yeah. They huh. have plenty of colonies. There are a lot of colonies. But we talked about one especially, not because it's important right now, but because it will be an important opponent of the Romans in the future. That would be... Oh, man. You put me on the founded, spot. Founded by Dido. Uh, hold on. Beach hold on. prostitutes. Yes. Hold on. Oh, God. Why can't I think of it? Okay, you get another hint. Oh, Hannibal. Like Hannibal? Yeah. Hannibal will come from this colony. Man. You know the guy with the elephants. Yes, I know. The, I know the story of Hannibal. Yeah, I really put you on the spot. Yes, you here. did. I was not expecting that. I was like, <laughs> "Oh, I'm just going to keep on reading. I got my script here. I'm doing well." Okay, should, should I tell you? <laughs> yes, tell me. And all these people are yelling at the yelling at their uh, podcast listening devices <laughs> on how how dumb I am. But go for it. So this. Is one of the big reasons why Carthage becomes so powerful. And I even did my story about Carthage, Carthage, Texas. Yes, you did. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, I apologize to all of our patrons. <laughs> because they can't, the, the, the most important colonies are closer right now, but you can't like go to Cyprus and expect to be free from the Assyrians. As Sargon will show us later in this century, Cyprus is not safe from the Assyrians. But Carthage is safe. Carthage is a long boat ride away. Mm. You can't reach it by by land. So this is one of the reasons that Carthage grows and becomes this very, very powerful city-state. And they keep their uh, ties to uh, Phoenicia, and they keep their Phoenician heritage. Um, they call the, the wars between Carthage and Rome the Punic Wars, and Punic just means uh, Phoenician. Oh, okay. So uh, they, they will keep up their Phoenician, and you will see in the attitude of Carthage in the future that they are merchants first and foremost, just like the Phoenicians. But um, this is here starts the very slow decline of the Phoenicians, and they will soon become pets of the Assyrians, because they are great sailors, mm -hmm. probably the best sailors in the world right now, and the Assyrians are among the worst. So the Phoenician navy will become an important tool for, for the Assyrian Empire. So suddenly they can actually fight the naval battle without uh, embarrassment. <laughs> 
729 BC, Luli becomes the king of Tyre. Uh, there was a guy between Luli and Hiram II, Matan II, but he, he was the son of Hiram II. He ruled less than one year. Uh, so this looks like a rebellion to me, but there is no record of a rebellion. We don't really know who Luli is. He could be a younger brother to Matan. But Luli becomes the king of Tyre. He's also called Elulaios in the sources. And he is kind of not okay with this. He doesn't want to go to Carthage. He wants the Phoenician Golden Age to continue. And he starts looking around for allies. Who could save him from TP3 and the Assyrian onslaught? But for now, nobody can. <laughs> Uh, so he doesn't rebel, and TP3 doesn't have to go west. So in 729 BC, TP3 goes to Babylon. Straight south, Babylon, Babylonia, the country of Babylon, is in the south of Iraq, and Assyria is in the north, pretty much, if you want to orientate yourself on the modern map. Uh, we had some events in Babylon earlier in the show. We uh, TP3 was allied, I believe, to the... Sumerian king, the native king of Babylon, but that guy is gone, and Mukin Siri, the Chaldean, is now a king of Babylon. We know that Chaldeans and Syrians do not mix very well. And uh, in, the, in the last time we met Tipitri, he sent diplomats to the natives of Babylon, trying to make them put another Babylonian on the throne, but that failed. And now it's time for the uh, standard Assyrian solution, invasion. Yeah, uh, if, you, if, you uh, if you can't talk your way out of it, you may as well beat your way out of it. Yes, and the Assyrian track record against the Babylonians in open battle is uh, astounding here. It's, uh, it's not often that the Babylonians stand any chance. Even though the Babylonians are probably among the best armies in the world, but they are a few levels below the Assyrians. Do we need to refresh the situation in Babylonia, the peoples? Because it's always complicated. Yeah, probably. Okay, we have the natives, the Samir the Sumerians or the sort of the people who identify themselves as we have been here forever, we are part of the original population, and we are the city dwellers. They are most often found in the cities. In these ancient cities, some of these cities are three thousand years old at this point. Um, and they are generally quite friendly to the Assyrians, and not as friendly as the Assyrians are to them, because the Assyrians have this little brother complex to the Babylonians culturally, and we see this constant influence of the Babylonians on the Assyrians. But when the Assyrians want to be friends with the Babylonians, it's always with the city dwellers. They don't care about the rest of the people in <laughs> Babylonia. And the rest of the people are tribal. There are three tribal groups in Babylonia still. The Kassites that used to rule Babylon, they are kind of on the downswing. They are, some of them have moved to their own country, Namri in the foothills of the Sagros Mountains, almost in Iran today then. And the Kassites are, yeah, they're not as important as they used to be. The important tribal people are the Chaldeans. There are three major tribes and several smaller tribes. And the king comes from one of these three important tribes. Uh, the Chaldeans will always be opposed to the Assyrians. If they ever join forces, it would be awesome. And then we have our old friends, the Arameans. One of the reasons for the Bronze Age collapse. 
And they're still around, still causing chaos. <laughs> they still have the best language, the best spoken language in the world. And it's best in the sense that it's easy to pick up. So the Aramean language is conquering all the peoples of the Near East, uh, despite uh, the Arameans not really intending this in any way. But their language is becoming the lingua franca of the world in, in the Near East because it's so easy to pick up. That's, that's amazing. And it, their language will eventually conquer the Assyrian and the Babylonians. Wow. That's just, uh, man, you make things easy to, to do and use and just set it free and everybody will do it. That's, that's just one of those I, universal human traits. It's amazing. Yeah, and I think I've said it five times, but I'm going to say it again. When Jesus Christ appears and starts walking around telling people good things, he will do that in Aramean. That's how influential their language is. It's amazing. Uh, the Arameans <clears throat> are super hard to control. As soon as there is any sort of unrest, they go, uh, yeah, they go berserk. They plunder farms. They steal stuff. They run around. They don't like cities very much. <laughs> But they tend to listen to the Chaldeans. So when a, a strong king appears who is Chaldean, the Arameans are like, oh, he's kind of like us. And the Chaldeans seems to have a diplomatic knack for controlling the Arameans. Not all of them. The Arameans are not a unit. But most of the Aramean tribes listen to a good Chaldean king. Which is, of course, a big problem for the Assyrians. And then we have the, na the nation of Elam in southern Iran, r straight over the mountains. You find this ancient, powerful kingdom, somewhat mysterious. We talked about it many times. And e Elam is, at this point, always worried about Assyrian world domination. So they tend to side with whoever is against Assyria. And we will see pretty soon in 720, that's uh, at least four episodes from now, but that the Elamites can sometimes win over Assyrian field armies. So the Elamite army is uh, a powerful army. And we will have a battle where the Elamites defeat the Assyrians. Not if you ask the Assyrians what happened, but we, we will deduce that <laughs> there is an Elamite victory over Assyrians. Um, and if, if an Assyrian king could actually form an alliance with Elam... That should be like the number one diplomatic goal to control Babylonia. But it's hard. And that's the situation in Babylonia, roughly. We also have Arabs uh, that are in the desert to the southwest. And they will soon become an influential factor in Babylonia as well. But they are not really at this point. Questions? No, I think that covers it. Okay, let's invade! Excellent. Let's move forward. Yeah, Tiglath Pileser III has revised the Assyrian army. This Assyrian army is much better than the one that Ashurnasirpal II had, and that army was still the best in the world. So now this gigantic force, at least 50,000 guys with their best commander ever, invades Babylonia. And uh, the cities of Dilbat and Nippur, the ancient cities of Dilbat and Nippur, they do the smart thing. They immediately turn coat and uh, say, hey, we love Assyrians. <laughs> and upon that event and some initial skirmishing, the Babylonian king, the Chaldean Mukinseri, he immediately leaves Babylon because Babylon is exposed. It's pretty far to the north and pretty close to Assyria. 
So he immediately flees to the sea land, to the marches in the south, the Chaldean homeland. So Babylon falls, uh, like, immediately <laughs> in this war. <laughs> right. And the native Sumerians, they use their uh, relationship to Assyria to immediately switch sides as well. They're like, oh, TP3, are you here? We just... We were just waiting for you. You know yeah. what those Chaldeans did. Right. Oh, no, no, no. We were on your side the whole time. All that other stuff, you forget about it. <laughs> and it sounds silly, but it works. This is what the Assyrians want to hear. Amazing. Um, the Chaldeans tried to unify the, all the tribes to fight uh, the Assyrian army, but it fails, and they can't really decide uh, who is going to do what. So before they even managed to put up a unified front, the rest of Babylonia has already fallen and only the sea land remains. These are marches. They're not marches today, but in, in the 8th century BC, they were swamps. Wow. And the Assyrians normally stay away from these places. They know the Chaldeans have all the advantages. They're used to the sea land. They've been here for 200 years. But Tiglath-Pileser just moves on into the marches he fights the Bit Amukani tribe and the Bit Shaili tribe. He overthrows King Sakiru of the Bit Shaili tribe. Uh, they take the Bit Shaili tribe's capital, Dur Ilayatu. They raise it to the ground. They take King Sakiru to Assyrian chains. And he's never heard of again. Hmm. I wonder uh, what could have happened. And now. I want to introduce one of the greatest villain, villains of our story. One of the big baddies that will be around forever. But this is his first appearance. The Bityakin tribe, the Chaldean tribe Bityakin, has a new ruler. His name is Merodach Baladan. He is a prominent figure in the Old Testament. And he will be a fantastic character. But he has just taken control of the Bityakin. And he sees this enormous army led by TP3 coming into the swamps. And he does the reasonable thing. Before he really needs to, he submits. He pledges allegiance to TP3. And perhaps the biggest Chaldean tribe is, is suddenly out of the conflict. So Merodach Baladan declares for TP3. And this declaration is what, uh, what wins the war in the, war in the swamps. So TP3 is kind of um, happy for this guy, that this guy did this, and gives him a title. He, uh, Merodach Baladan is given the title King of the Sea Land by the Assyrians. So well played Merodach Baladan, and we will see Merodach Baladan again so many times. <laughs> and he is a political genius. And this was the, the clever thing to do at this point, because nothing could stop TP3 here. Right. But Mukinsiri, he's still the king of Babylonia, or so he thinks, so he will not yield to the Assyrians. Uh, there is another small tribe called the Bitsilani. Their king, Nabu Usabsi, is impaled on stakes, and they are crushed by the Assyrian army. And now we only have Mukinsiri himself. His sea land capital is Shabiya, and he he knew that people, when the Assyrians came, when the Assyrians invaded, he knew that people would would defect from him. But his plan right. was to be scarier than the Assyrians. <laughs> so Mukinseri was a tyrant 
of the worst kind. He he did Assyrian-style massacres of people who tried to defect. And it almost worked, but it didn't work on Merodach Baladan. And um, this uh, capital then is besieged by the Assyrians. But Mukinseer is still outside the capital, fighting in a place called Boharu, where he has some other defections. And uh, we have a record that Mukinseri's subjects uh, rustled his sheep at this point. Stole the sheep? Yes. <laughs> like, where are my sheep? Oh, those guys stole them. Wow. And I suppose that uh, was really bad because they were provisions for the war. So we now get two endings to this war that are different from each other. Uh, we have a Babylonian chronicle that reports uh, the following events. Oh, you can read it. Okay. In a, so this is the Babylonian chronicle report? Yes. All right. The Assyrian king, having come down to Akkad, ravaged, bit Amukanu, and captured Mukanziri. Uh, bit Amukanu was Mukanziri's uh, Chaldean tribe. We also have letters, because with TP3 we start getting the Assyrian letters, and this will go crazy, the amount of letters we have for just in 20 years from now, 10, 20 years, we have a ton of Assyrian letters. That is really letters on, uh, on uh, it's on, what's the name? It's on mud, you, you put it in a kiln. What, what's, what is it for? Yes, <laughs> it's clay tablets, yeah. With clay letters. tablets, okay. Good. And uh, during the time of Sargon and Sennacherib, we have so many Assyrian letters preserved. And here we have a letter that uh, to TP3 that states that Mukinseri was killed by Sumaukin, his son. And then Sumaukin was killed by someone. And that the resistance is crushed, we conquered the sea land. But both records end with a big Assyrian victory. So TP3 has conquered Babylonia in a way that no Assyrian king have done before, except perhaps Shamshadad IV. But um, his conquest of Babylonia was unhealthy for everyone. <laughs> but now we have TP3 in Babylon. And we've been in this situation before that Assyria has conquered Babylon and then they screw up in some way because there will always be resistance. And we've seen different ways of solving the Babylonian problem. But now we have this genius king, and he decides to uh, find a new solution. It is possible that he considered his own son, Shalmaneser, uh, as the, to put him on the Babylonian throne. But as we will see in the future, there are some problems with Shalmaneser. So I don't think that Tigla thought that uh, Shalmaneser was good enough for the job. And in the end... There was only one man in the Assyrian Empire who could handle Babylonia. Tiglath Pelleser III himself. <laughs> so in an unprecedented move, Tiglath Pelleser crowns himself as the king of Babylon using his uh, real name, his old name. So he becomes King Pulu of Babylon. Because huh. you can't be the king of Babylon and have a, a classic Assyrian name like right. Tiglath Pelleser III. And... Uh, the Babylonians are like, what did he just do? But then they think about it. Like, we, we like the Sumerian kings, the native, the city-dweller kings. 
they kind of do a good job. And Tiglath Pelleser is an Assyrian, he's close enough. So maybe this will work if he does what a Babylonian king is supposed to do, that is stay in Babylon, grasp the hand of Marduk during the New Year ritual, right. and sort of be there for the Babylonians. And this is exactly what Tiglath Pelleser intends to do, at least for the first period. So when he is in Babylon, and he claims that he's the Babylonian king, all the people in Babylonia are like, well, this kind of works. So it's uh, problem solved, huh. at least for the short term. Well, that's an interesting we, move. Yeah, and we also get a name for Shalmaneser, the crown prince. He is named Ululayu in Babylonia. In the same way that Tiglath Pelleser III was known as Pulu. And that is probably like their birth names. So Babylonia r remains independent. It just happens to have the same king as Assyria. <laughs> and of course, the problem with this long term is that the Assyrian king has to be in Babylon. And Babylon has to become the capital of both countries. And we don't get that far this time. We also have deportations, of course. Tiglath Pelleser III is very proud of his deportation policy. So a lot of Chaldeans and Arameans and other troublemakers are deported to other parts of the Assyrian Empire. And this is a very common policy. It began with Ashurnasirpal II, or he revived this policy from the Middle Assyrian Empire. It actually began immediately. They, they've been deporting people all the time. And the numbers are staggering, and they are hard to believe. Sometimes we find people that have been deported by Assyrians appearing in the narrative. So we know this happened, but if it really happened to this extent, it's, uh, it's hard to believe. And we will, of course, get the most famous deportation when we get to the lost tribes of Israel who were deported by an Assyrian king. Hmm. And then I don't know anything about 728 BC. And in 727 BC, we have only a record from the Eponym Chronicle, the, the one-line chronicle of every year of Assyria. And it says, it is partly broken up, but it says something like, during the eponymy of Bul Haran Bula Osur, the governor of Gusana, campaign against something, Shalmaneser V ascended the throne. And that means that TP3 is dead. Wow. Yeah, and we have no idea how. It seems to be very early. For maybe if he was like 40, we, we don't know his age, but if he was like right. 40, 45, he would still only be a little above 60. But there was, of course, a thousand ways to die in the ancient world. Oh, yeah. So here we lose the greatest king the Assyrians ever had. But don't be worried, because the, he has set a, a precedence for the upcoming kings. So there will be kings that are great, but they are not TP3. And the Assyrian Empire will grow even bigger from this point. So let's remember TP3. At the point of his ascension, the empire was in total shambles, as I said. And when he died, the Assyrian Empire was bigger than it had ever been. He went from almost nothing to this enormous empire that would make uh, Ashurnasirpal II or Shalmaneser III go like, Whoa, you can do that? 
He took the best army in the world, made it much better. A lot of things that you... Before you heard this episode, you thought that the Persians and the Romans invented the stuff. All of the things we talked about with GP3, that was from his age. And maybe it was even him that invented it. There are, there's no other Syrian that influenced world history to the extent that he did. We can see perhaps a future king, Ashurbanipal, in the 7th century BC, have a lot of influence on world history. And when people remember the Assyrians, they remember Ashurbanipal before Tiglath-Pileser III. But there are reasons for that, that we will talk about later. Uh, we haven't talked much about the building projects of GP3, but any good Assyrian king is a builder. And I have no idea how he managed to build all this stuff. So now I'll quickly list all the stuff GP3 built at some point, somehow. <laughs> I feel like I should have some, some music under this, like an in-memoriam. <laughs> yeah, you please add something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so here are the building projects of TP3 during his long reign. He built a new palace at Kala, replacing Ashur Nasirpal's old palace. The first excavator of Kala, Layard, called this the central palace because it was even better than Ashur Nasirpal's palace. It uh, rested on a platform of limestone blocks raised from the Tigris. It was built partly out of wood from all over the empire. There was a lot of precious metal in it. Uh, it was still heavily influenced by the new Hittite style, just like the old palace. There are great depictions of TP Tree's deeds on stone slabs lining the walls, but they are not as well preserved as Ashur Nasipal's uh, reliefs because a future king, Esarhaddon, looted TP Tree's palace to build his own palace in Kala. But this palace, the Southwest Palace, was never finished. TP3 also worked on the Temple of Naboo in Kala. He restored the Asharia itself, the great temple of Asher in Asher. He did work on the Adad Temple in Asher. He built a palace at Ashur Ikisha. And he constructed the Kadatu near Karkemish. So that's some buildings. And now the great king has left the stage and I definitely think this guy should be mentioned along with, as I said before, Julius Caesar, Napoleon and Alexander the Great. And I think the reason he isn't is that the records are so bad. We don't know the full details. We don't get the, the colorful story of Alexander or Julius Caesar here. But now we have a new king in Assyria and a new king in Babylon, and it happens to be the same guy, King Shalmaneser V of Assyria and King Ululayu of Babylon. There are no images of this king. The only illustration I found is from the Old Testament, because Shalmaneser V will appear in the Old Testament. And... Uh, if you want to look ahead, you can look in Kings, Second Kings 17 to 18. You'll find some mention of Shalmaneser V. Uh, it's, of course, a really bad sign that we don't have images of Shalmaneser. That's a hint that things are not going to go well for Shalmaneser <laughs> V. Uh, he might already have been responsible for the administration of Assyria and the empire and responsible for the court in Kala, in the capital while TP3 was on campaign. 
this would later be the traditional task of the crown prince and it might have begun here. Uh, we have some letters from a guy called Ululayu to TP3 telling TP3 of administration things in the capital. And we have another source that states that Ululayu was responsible for the administration of Phoenicia as the crown prince. But we know very, very little of this guy. We know that nobody uh, contested his rise to power. And we, we've seen that Assyrian kings becoming king is sometimes contested, but here is nothing. And the absence of sources here is, is notable. It's remarkable. We have all these sources for TP3, and then we have almost nothing for Shalmaneser V. It's almost as if someone removed the sources and tried to forget about this guy. Uh, we be, have some. Also, yeah. that would be a historical scandal. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we have some entries from the Epinom Chronicle, but three years are damaged. Uh, some years are damaged. We have like campaign against something. We know that Shalmaneser V stayed in the land in 726 BC, and when Assyrian kings stay in the land, it's bad. It's like we didn't do a campaign, so we say stay in the land, because that sounds better than <laughs> had some problems or were lazy. Right. Or disappointed our god. <laughs> but for now, for this episode, we leave Shalmaneser V in uh, charge of the Neo-Syrian Empire. And of course, he will have his great moment in history in episode 58. Because next time we'll talk only about Egypt, and he doesn't go to Egypt. So now let's check in with this uh, small, uh, or this powerful nation to the north of Assyria. Urartu! We last saw Urartu when King Rusa were crushed by Tiglath-Pileser III. And he went back to Urartu. He was like, oh, I'm so scared of this guy. And he did the Rotian thing. He built more fortresses and went for the fortress defense of the mountains that has served Urartu so well for such a long time. And we have to note that TP3 never successfully really invaded Urartu. Not like Ashurnasipal II or Shalmanesi III did. But there is a crisis in Urartu and it, it results in a religious change. Because they had this war god, Kaldi, as their most important god. And he told them to go to war every year because he was a carbon copy of Asher. And now Rusa doesn't want to go to war every year. So Urartian Sages says that we have neglected another important god. And that is why misfortune have befallen us. So we have to put more emphasis on the worship of Taishiba. And it's an old Harian god of war and storms. So now they're like, well, Teshiba is as important as Kaldi. So big religious change in Urartu. Uh, the most notorious fortress built during this period it was built at Lake Sivan. That's far northeast, far from the Assyrians. And it's probably built to control the new conquests in the north that Urartu has made. And Rusa doesn't put his own name on this new uh, fortress, but it's named the city of Taishiba to honor this old new god <laughs> that they rise to prominence. But he's like, oh, now Kaldi will be pissed at me. So <laughs> I have to build a city of Kaldi <laughs> as well. 
so the gods are not jealous of right. each other. You gotta, you gotta make them. Gotta make but them then yeah, then Rusa needs a success to make people forget how badly he was beaten by TP3. And he has his eyes on Musasir. And Musasir is the old, sort of the religious center of Kaldi. And Musasir is close to Assyria, really close. It's in the borderlands between Assyria and Urartu. And uh, Rusa digs up uh, Ursana, the old king of Musasir who earlier in our story fled to the Urartians. So he has been hanging around in the Urartian court. And Rusa says, you are supposed to be king in Musasir again. And uh, that happens. And Musasir is strengthened and is incorporated in the Urartian defense plan. So Musasir is supposed to help defend Urartu against an invasion from the south. And there's also an Urartian governor put in place in uh, Musasir, who is supposed to keep check on this Ursana guy so he doesn't declare for Assyria. And we have a stele about this event that uh, the, the sort of, wow, Musasir is now great again. <laughs> and it's in both Assyrian and Urartian cuneiform, so the Assyrians could read it as well. And then Rusa dug in and was like, okay, I'm ready for the invasion. Come on, Assyria! Ah, where are you guys? TP3 is dead. And the Assyrian attack that uh, the Urartians expected did not come. But soon, far to the north of Urartu, new power will awaken. And Urartu will get new problems. Oh, great. In addition to their own problems. <laughs> that is Assyria. Urartu's got it coming and going. Well, and it's a, it's a miracle that Urartu will actually survive longer than uh, Assyria will. Spoiler! Uh-oh. Giving it away. Alright, well I guess that's all for this episode. In our next episode, looks like it's time to try and unify Egypt. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.